The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 9. This week, we are going to jump back into the book of Psalms. As we have the last couple of years, uh, we are working our way through. We take a chunk every year, and we are just studying this book together, verse by verse. Uh, For me, doing this has greatly increased my affection and appreciation for the Psalms. Uh, I hope it has, or at least will, for you as well. Uh, The book of Psalms, as you're turning, just to refresh us on what we're studying here, the book of Psalms is the largest collection of ancient lyrical poetry in existence, This collection of poems and songs is called Psalms, and that's based on the Greek word psalmos, uh, and that roughly translates to a composition sung to the accompaniment of stringed instruments. Uh, The Hebrew title for this book could be summed up essentially in one word, and that's praises. And and this really makes sense, especially as you work through this book, uh, because even... um, Even the psalms that that include brutal honesty about trials and struggles, which is many of them, for the most part, they end up affirming God's sovereignty and goodness. They end up in praises and worship to God. Uh, There are several authors of the psalms. Uh, They were not all written at the same time. So just as the Bible is many books written by several authors over a span of roughly 1,500 years, the psalms were written by different people facing different situations. There is some debate about authorship among critical scholars, but the most widely accepted breakdown, uh, according to the resources in the Apologetic Study Bible, which I think is a fairly trustworthy resource, is as follows. Moses wrote Psalm 90. David wrote 73 psalms, which is roughly half of them. Psalms 50 and uh, 73 through 83 came from Asaph or his descendants. Uh, Haman the Ezraite wrote Psalm 88. His name, I think, could also be pronounced He-Man, which I prefer, but uh, I digress. Ethan the Ezraite wrote Psalm 89, and Solomon wrote Psalm 72 and 127. The rest are anonymous, so we don't know who wrote some of them. Uh, the Psalms, which are clearly very poetic and musical, are also incredibly artistic, and so that means they are full of illustrative language and comparison. Uh, Many of the psalms also have double meanings, where the situation described or that somebody's working through as they're singing to the Lord, they were happening to the people then, uh, but they are also prophetic and pointing to something happening in the future. And so we'll see some of that as we work through them. Okay, so that leads us to Psalm 9. Last year we left off verses 1 through 12, so we are going to pick up right where we stopped, and we're going to work through verses 13 through 20 of Psalm 9. Okay? So here we go. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You will lift me up from the gates, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. 
The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Praise God for his word. We'll come back to the beginning here, verses 13 and 14. And what we see here is is these verses give us some profound instruction on our motives when we call out to God for help. Uh, This is a common theme throughout all of the scriptures, so we talk about it often. It's important not just to call out to the Lord, but to assess why. Uh, And asking ourselves why is a good practice pretty much all the time. But in order to see and understand uh, how this is dealing with motives, we need to probably understand a little bit better what's going on here. So, first of all, when it says in verse 14 that I may tell of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. So, first of all, we need to know that um, the, the mountain that Jerusalem is built upon, that's Zion, okay? And so the daughter of Zion, when you see that reference, that's a reference to Jerusalem. Sometimes it refers to the city itself kind of in a geographical sense. Sometimes the daughter of Zion refers to the people inhabiting the city of Jerusalem. But when he talks about the gates of the daughter of Zion, he's talking about the gates of Jerusalem, okay? And so that understanding that helps us understand a little bit more what he's thinking about when he's talking about rejoicing in his salvation. Because if we understand what the gates of Jerusalem were, and this was common in many cities in ancient history, the gates were kind of a place of gathering. They were always busy. There was always uh, business transactions happening there. There was always a lot of people at the gates, people coming and going, travelers coming in and leaving, uh, all kinds of social activity centered around the gates of the city. And so that tells us something here about why it is David is crying out for uh, this graciousness and for God to notice him in his affliction. So let's look at it again. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that, I may, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. And so even as David is crying out to God, right, as he's asking him to, to, to notice him in his affliction, right, and, and uh, just as we'll see in, in, in later on in these verses, Sometimes it seems like God doesn't see you in your, in, in your affliction when you're in the middle of your affliction, right? But we know that's not true, right? His eyes don't leave us. Uh, he, his eyes are upon us. His affections are set toward us. And so uh, David's crying out here to some degree in the Psalms, like I said, they're very, we, we see raw emotion coming through in them, which is good because it shows us that it's, that's, that's okay. It's okay to talk to God about how it feels. Um, the key is, as, as we often see, that Though we can talk to God in that way, we must also cling to his promises that are true and also be willing to speak those. And so as David makes this appeal, be gracious to me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, he's already thinking about, so surely his affliction is in mind. He, he, is, he is asking God to come and to address that and to be a part of that situation. But he is also saying, here's the other thing I'm excited about. God, as you answer my prayers, because as you, O God, show yourself faithful, which you always do, I am going to have the opportunity then to stand in the gates, in the public place, to stand in the midst of a large crowd and declare your praises, to speak of your faithfulness and to declare your salvation 
to anybody that will stand still long enough to listen. And so what does that say to us, dear friends? What, what does that push us towards when we assess our motives for prayer? Are we thinking about not only the need that we have, but the glory of God on the other side of it? That's what we see in David's motives. I think that's instructive for us. Uh, thinking this way and having this kind of, I don't want to just call it a discipline, though it is one. It, it's, it's a mindset. It's, it's, a, it's a way in which we look at and approach situations. Being able to think this way about the glory of God sort of at the beginning of a trial or even in the midst of a trial, right? When sometimes all seems dark, it seems like God doesn't see. Sometimes it's been a long time and we've been praying the same thing and it can be discouraging and it can be difficult. Thinking about the glory of God as he answers those prayers, right? And, and, and as we've talked about throughout the last several weeks, we, we can't give God a specific list of exactly how we think this should happen, right? And, and does David do that? He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. He's asking for God's grace. He's not giving him a laundry list of exactly how God needs to handle it because he knows God's sovereign and God knows things he doesn't know. And so humble prayers are good prayers. But this, this idea, thinking of God's glory, thinking of God's faithfulness and our ability to share that, our ability to speak of that in the midst of our difficulty and that being a motive for prayer, right? A lot of times when we pray about difficulty, Sometimes we're only pushed to prayer because it gets difficult enough that we're bothered, right? Some, and that's, that's, that's a real bummer because when difficulty comes, half the time we're trying to white-knuckle it, do it ourselves, find every other option to try to relieve the pressure. When, when the, the, the model that we see here and, and what all the scriptures would lay out for us is that at, at the very beginning of understanding that difficulty has come, that we're in the midst of a trial or some type of trying situation, is for us to turn to God not only with a motive of, God, get me out of this. This hurts, or this is uncomfortable, or this is painful, or I just want to be done with it, or whatever that looks like. But also, and that's okay, but also this motive be in there that I'm so convinced of God's faithfulness that as he answers faithfully, I'm going to be able to speak about that. I'm excited at the beginning of the trial that I'm going to get to talk about how good God's been. That's part of why. I want to see, his glory is a factor for me in my desire to see him answer my prayers and my cries for grace. It's good. This is part of how we obey the strange sounding command to rejoice in tribulation, right? We have that throughout the scriptures. I'll give you one example. 1 Peter 4, this is verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Now, uh, some of you might say, well, that sounds great, Peter, uh, but you're not struggling the way I'm struggling. Well, just, just so that we can put some weight behind this scripture that Peter wrote, right? He was the one that towards the beginning of Acts, they brought him in in front of the, the, the council of the religious leaders of that day and beat the slobber out of his mouth, and told him, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And him and his buddy walked out of there, and the Bible says they sang songs in the street and praised God. And here's the verbiage, guys. Go check it out later. For the opportunity to suffer for the name of Christ. They rejoiced in the midst of that. Now, I know for some of you that sounds alien, and that sounds weird, and that sounds almost crazy. However, 
They understood what David understood, and I believe what God hopes for all of us to understand, and that's that tribulation and difficulty is not always what we think it is. Sometimes we, we, we get stuck in this paradigm that it, it's always a bad thing, and we're focused on how it hurts or what is negative about it, and oftentimes it's difficult for us to see how growth and how training in righteousness and how uh, God's glory comes through us trusting him and being excited about his glory as he delivers us through trial and trouble. And so um, Romans 5 also speaks to that same ideal right at the beginning of the chapter. So um, as God's glory becomes our greatest delight, we can be excited in opportunities for his faithfulness to be displayed through our difficulties. That's, that's really important. And what, part, what is part of what's required for any of this to make sense? We have to care deeply about God's glory. And this is, this is a general premise that as Christians we should ask ourselves. If we're followers of Christ, we should stare in a real mirror or a figurative mirror or whatever you want to do, but we need to ask ourselves in a serious way, get eye to eye with ourselves on this question. Do I care about God's glory? Do I care about it? Because he cares about it. And because God's glory, God being glorified, is ultimately for our good. Now, even if it wasn't, since he's the supreme ruler of everything, the one that spoke and created it all, also the one that when we created the problem of sin, uh, did everything necessary to rescue us and to bring us back into reconciled relationship with him, to give us righteousness that we could have never earned on our own. And so he's worthy of worship and worthy of glory, whether or not it had any benefit for us. But the beautiful part is it does. Because though God is concerned about his glory in the earth, he is also a God of love. And him being glorified and lifted up is an act of love towards us. Because as he's glorified, our joy increases. Because we're with him. We're on team Jesus. So as he gets lifted high, right, we get to rejoice. And as he is glorified, we are less prone to the entanglements and distractions of things that lead us oftentimes into pain and suffering. And so God's glory is for our good. My question in regards to all this, dear friends, as we see how David prayed, as we see how Peter reacts in the book of Acts, as we see uh, just throughout the scriptures this, this idea that God's people are able to rejoice in the midst of trial. Uh, and, and even to the specific point here that Part of David's prayer as he's asking for deliverance and he's asking for help from God is, Lord, I'm looking forward to you being faithful. Whatever that looks like, I'm looking forward to you doing that because then I'm going to get to run down to the gates where everybody's standing and I'm going to get to tell them how good and faithful you've been. Friends, will you, will you pray for this perspective? That's my question to you. Will you push yourself in this? Will you ask yourself these hard questions? Will you ask God because you're going to need his help to remember to think this way the next time hard times come? the next time difficulty comes, the next time trial is standing between you and wherever you're trying to get. Because that's when it's easy to forget. If we nod our heads and intellectually agree with what we see here right now, but the next time we have an opportunity to persevere and to rejoice in the midst of trial uh, and we forget these things, it'll have done us no good. And so I'm asking you, friends, to, to make a part before you hit the place where you're crying out to God for mercy in the midst of difficulty. Make a part of your prayer life and a part of your communication with God. Ask him because you can't, you can't self-discipline, you can't will 
this kind of reaction and this kind of thought process into your heart and mind. You're not just going to say, okay, I'm going to be I'm going to be primarily concerned with God's glory. I'm going to rejoice in God's glory above all else. I'm going to be excited about the potential for God being glorified when I'm in the middle of a difficult situation. That's not going to be just something that that we decide. It's going to be an an active work of the Spirit in our hearts, in our minds, and and for us to be, our minds to be changed and our our hearts to be conformed to uh, the truth of the Word of God as it regards to this. So I'm just asking you to pray about it. I'm asking you to submit that to God. Uh, that we would all grow in that way together. I'm thankful that it's possible. I'm thankful he answers those kinds of prayers. Amen. Verses 15 and 16. They say, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Now, wicked nations here, it kind of seems like he's, he's talking about two different things, but really, wicked nations is a specific example of this overall premise, and this, this is what these couple of verses are laying out. It, it can be summed up in this line, the last verse, uh, last line of verse 16. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. That's really the point he's making here. Now, uh, it's also interesting that he makes this point in verse 16, that the Lord has made himself known, right? And I think sometimes people lob an accusation at God that he's not made himself known enough. I've heard that. I don't know if you have, that God's kind of hid himself or not. If, if God was real, he would be more obvious or more, more overt about his existence. Um, and I think that sentiment only rises out of uh, an inability to look right, an inability to see all the ways God has made himself very obvious. And, and David seems to be saying here that uh, in, in this very fact that when the wicked make schemes in the work of their own hands, they end up getting trapped. When they spread a net out for somebody else, their own foot gets caught in it. This idea that when the wicked digs a pit, that they fall into it, that God has, in a way, he's revealed himself even in, in that principle working itself out. And so and we, we see this all throughout the scriptures. And I don't know if you've... Uh, observed it in your own life. You can look throughout history, even outside of the Bible. But it, it, the, And I realize there are cases where it doesn't seem like we can see how somebody working evil or intentionally hurting others, how kind of they, they end up ensnared in that. But we also need to realize that the, the, this is where the artistic and kind of exemplary nature of the Psalms comes through, right? He's using examples. So we, we can't say, well, um, if, somebody's, if somebody's selling drugs and destroying people's lives and they don't end up dying by a drug overdose, that this isn't true, right? Because the reality is what we don't see is y- you don't know what that drug dealer dreams about or doesn't dream about because they never sleep, right? You don't understand that the wicked things that people are doing, and I'm, I'm using a drug dealer as an example, there, there's all kinds of wickedness that people do, things that ways that people hurt others. Drug dealer comes to mind in this context because it seems like it's talking, and further down it talks about kind of the wicked not caring so much about the poor and, and, and oppressing others in order to accomplish their means. And so j- just because we don't see how their foot gets caught in that net or we don't see how they end up falling in their own hole, here's the bottom line truth, and it's always true. The wicked will get caught in their own traps. 
The wicked, are, there's, there is a price to pay. It's in this life and it's also for eternity. And, and the fact that this works itself out always is one of the ways the Lord has revealed himself. This is a true premise. It's a true fact that always happens. There's a biblical story that, that bears this out, and it, it's not the only one for sure. You, you see this theme throughout uh, the Old and New Testament. But if, if you think back to uh, Joseph's brothers, right? Uh, Joseph, as he's uh, you know, coming of age, he's getting, getting into his teenage years, he starts to have these dreams, right? He has dreams where uh, these, these figures that are, are his brothers and even his father end up bowing down to him. And, and you could debate whether Joseph's real wise in this move or not, but he ends up telling everyone, right? He has these dreams, and he, he's like, hey, guys, check it out. I had this dream, and you guys were bowing down to me. You can guess their response if you haven't read the story. The big brothers and um, even dad weren't that thrilled about that. And so what ends up happening is a jealousy is cultivated in them, and, and they end up in this incredibly wicked scheme, right? It's, it starts out with a suggestion, and, and things get rolling, and it ends up with these guys throwing Joseph in a pit, then they pull him out and end up selling him into slavery. They dip his coat in blood, go back and tell their father he's torn apart by an animal. But what do they think they're doing? In, in this wicked scheme, because of their jealousy, they think they're stopping any potential for that dream Joseph had to come true, right? Because how's that going to happen? They just sold that guy into slavery. He's done for. Well, what they didn't know is the very work of their hands played into the plan. Right? That they couldn't stop the sovereignty of God. Because what happens? Yeah, Joseph does get sold into slavery. And then he gets sold to somebody in Egypt. And that guy's an official. And he starts to get some notoriety. It goes bad for him again. A lady lies on him. He ends up in jail. But the word gets out that he can interpret dreams. Ends up getting brought before Pharaoh. Interprets a dream for him. He ends up, in the end of the thing, wearing Pharaoh's signet ring. And essentially running things. And it's very interesting because his brothers end up, uh, because of famine in their land coming and having to bow before their brother uh, and hope for mercy, which uh, beautifully he gives. So the whole point here is they worked wickedness, uh, and it ended up they were, they were caught right in it, man. The, the net they spread and, and what they were trying to avoid still came to pass. And so th this is one of the ways. This, this, it, it ties into the idea of sowing and reaping. The, the Lord has, he has made himself known in that. Uh, he, he has executed judgment. God has not uh, turned a blind eye to injustice and evil. And I'm thankful for that. Uh, verses 17 and 18. says, The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Now, first of all, I want to explain here uh, this, this word sheol, because it can be a little bit confusing. When you see sheol in the Old Testament, what that's referring to is kind of the place of the dead. I don't know if you remember the um, teaching Jesus gives about Lazarus, where he's separated from Abraham's bosom by a great gulf, and he's asking Abraham to dip his, water, his finger in water and dip it on his tongue, right, because he's so thirsty, and then he asks Abraham, hey, send somebody back from the dead to talk to my brothers, and then they'll believe, and, you know, Abraham says, listen, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe someone sent back from the dead, so th that's, that's one of the 
clearest pictures we have of, of kind of what's being talked about here. So Sheol is, is the place of the dead. And I'm only making a point to say this because I don't know what Bible translation you have. Sometimes it'll say, where it says Sheol here, it'll say hell. And that can be confusing. So Sheol is the place of the dead. It's commonly understood to be where people were held uh, before, you know, when they died before Christ, right? Because we know now uh, from Jesus' teaching and other places in the New Testament that if, if somebody that dies in faith, right, if they have put their faith in Christ, if, if Jesus has done the, the beautiful work of regeneration upon their heart and they are recipients of the grace of God, when, when we die, we are with the Lord. And so there is no holding then for the believer. Uh, we are with Jesus, just like he looked over to the guy on the cross, right, the thief, and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So that's pretty clear. Uh, but before Christ came, there is this idea of, of Sheol, or the place of the dead. You'll hear uh, in the New Testament, you'll see a reference to a word called uh, Hades, right? And so that's kind of the same thing. And it's important to understand that that's, you see Sheol or Hades, you want to think place of the dead, but that's, that's different than, and unfortunately sometimes gets used interchangeably with the word hell. Now Jesus talked about a place called Gehenna. He, he compared it to this burning refuse pile outside of the city. And when he talked about that, he, that's, that's what we should commonly refer to as hell. And that's, that is the lake of fire described in Revelation where final judgment, death, Hades, Satan, and everybody who decides to reject Jesus and, and doesn't want anything to do with him, there is a place of final judgment. And it, it, it sounds really nasty. And uh, our great mission is to let as many people as possible know they don't have to go there because of Jesus. So there is a place called hell. That's different than Sheol. Uh, and that's what, so that's what's being talked about here. The, the wicked will return to Sheol. Just want to explain that difference to you, because there's some confusion around that, about that, and um, I felt it was, it was worthy of us addressing, so we have some understanding. So, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God, for the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Now, there is a, there is a striking and beautiful contrast here between those who forget God and those who will never be forgotten by him. Now, when we, when we think of wickedness, I think for the most part, I, I know this is true for me, uh, we mostly think of overt, wicked's kind of a strong word, right? You don't run around calling people wicked. Maybe it's just, it's fallen out of favor, but also that's, that's kind of a, you say wicked, man, you really mean it, you know? That's, that's a strong word. So I think we think of overt, purposeful, kind of in-your-face rebellion against God's laws and boundaries. And we think some, if somebody's wicked, man, they are, they are God-haters. They are spitting in his face, and they are doing evil things. It's not just kind of a, new, a person you would view more neutral towards God, but somebody that's really against him in an outward way. But here we see that wickedness is as much forgetting God as it is disobeying him. So forgetters of God, which we would... I think oftentimes not necessarily clarify as, or, or classify as wicked, we see here they get lumped together. Forgetters of God and the wicked. I want to read you part of Charles Spurgeon's comments on this passage. I think we need to understand this because there really is not as wide uh, uh, or maybe any distance between being a forgetter of God and, and being wicked as we think. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. The forgetters of God are far more numerous than the profane or the prodigal. Forgetfulness seems a small sin, 
but it brings eternal wrath upon the man who lives and dies in it. Here's what we need to realize. The truth is, forgetting God often comes before failing to obey him. Forgetting God often comes before failing to obey him. And what does it mean to forget God? Well, I think to some degree, just like it sounds, for some people, they get so encapsulated and enraptured by whatever's going on in their life, they, they just don't even think about God in a given day, a given week, in a given month, a given year. They can go a long time without the, the, the thought of the supreme ruler of the universe even crossing their mind. Their eyes are so focused and their actions and their lives, all of their motivations so focused upon what they've got going on, God is nowhere even in the picture. They've totally forgotten him. Sometimes it's less drastic than that. Sometimes it's simply just just for us even sometimes forgetting who God is, right? How How do people forget God? I think they forget who he is, they forget what he's done, and they oftentimes forget what he's declared. Who we, they've forgotten who God is. I think when, when we let other ideas, other than how the scriptures, God gave us the scriptures to describe for us who God is, what his character is like, how he responds to situations, what he thinks about different things. And one way we forget him is when we forget what it is we've been taught about him, what it is that, that he's revealed about himself. And we let other ideas begin to come in and influence and, and, and teach us and begin to be ingrained in us, um, and, and then we project those ideas upon God, that's, that's forgetting him. And that's, that is wicked. It is wicked for us to not care about what he's said about himself and take our own ideas or the ideas of others and then project them back on him. That's, a, that's forgetting what he said, and it's, uh, it's a slap in his face, to, to be quite frank. And so we oftentimes struggle with forgetting who God is. And anytime we forget who God is, it's going to lead to these other problems. It's going to lead to disobedience. Uh, because remembering who God is, first of all, in his, in his supreme sovereignty, that he is the ruler of the universe, that's, that's a good thing for us to remember, that he is, he is a loving father that has invited us to relate to him as sons and daughters. Praise God for that. Hope your heart's full of gratitude today that you, if you have put faith in Christ, if you have been uh, brought into the family of God by faith uh, and grace alone, that you get to refer to God and come to God as Father. That's wonderful. But he is also, at the very same time, our king. He is our king. And so we have to relate to him that way. That's who he is. And we can't forget who God is. That's going to affect the way we pray. It's going to affect the way we filter decisions and how we exert uh, energy towards how we spend resources and what we do. Everything, everything should be run through the grid of God is king. And here's what he's said about what he thinks and what he finds acceptable. So we can't forget who God is. We can't forget what God does or what he's done. So often we forget even what the scriptures lay out for us. This, This beautiful story where we see God creating us, first of all, as an incredible benevolent act of mercy, creating us in full knowledge that we were going to be as much trouble as we are, right? Yay, God, incredible sign of his love and mercy right there, that he's messed with us at all. The story goes on, and, and we create a bunch of trouble by disobeying him, and then 
the rest of the scriptures really is, tr- is tracing. It's following the scarlet thread of, of God's plan of redemption throughout all the Old Testament up until Christ. And then we, we see uh, the fullness of God's plan of redemption as Jesus comes on the scene. And the rest of the scriptures then instruct us how to live in light of the fact that Jesus has come and God's plan of redemption, his faithfulness was put on display through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so uh, we can't forget, friends, we can't forget what God's done uh, even in, in light of what the scriptures contain and tell us, but we also can't forget what God has done with us. And friends, can we be honest? Can we be honest for a moment and say that sometimes our ingratitude, sometimes our propensity and tendency for sinful behavior that is disobedient towards God is, is a result of forgetfulness. Sometimes we forget what he's done the grand redemption narrative, but also in our own lives. Sometimes we forget the times God has come and been so merciful. Sometimes we forget the times, and, and, and many of you have stories, because we've swapped stories about where God's mercy rushed in in a moment where it, it looked like it should have gone a whole lot worse, right? There were so many times when, I can just say for myself, had God not intervened, there's so many times I could have been dead. There's so many times that poor decisions I made could have led to much greater consequences. But God's mercy was there. Uh, and, and, it's, it's, and it's not just that. There's, there's so many things he has done. And when we forget what he's done and we forget what he does, what he's promised to do, it opens us up and it makes it so much easier for us to do those things that we would be more prone to classify as wicked, to be overtly rebellious, to make decisions that disregard what God would think or say about the situation. So forgetfulness is something we have to push back against, and we have to ask for God's help, that we would be mindful, that we would have a good memory as it pertains to who God is, what he's done, and also what he's declared. He has not been ambiguous about what is good for us and what his benevolent boundaries are. He's told us. He's given us restrictions that are to protect us. Anything God has asked us not to do is because if we do that thing, it will hurt us. And anything God has told us to do, it's because we will have more joy and we will see his glory more clearly as we do those things. It's, it's never, God is never about just arbitrary rules for the sake of rules. He always has intention behind everything he's declared. And when we forget what he's declared, Isn't it obvious that then we are more prone to be tripped up by those things? And that's why all of these things, this idea of forgetfulness is part of why having the word of God written upon our hearts. That's why gathering like this and studying his word together, and and when I say study his word together, I don't mean us gather together and, and, and just tell funny stories. I mean, when we get into the text, man, and we let the word of God drive what it is we're learning and what we're studying, and the word of God becomes, as the scriptures describe, written inscribed upon the tablet of our heart to the point that the next time we come up to a place where there's a decision to be made and we could either obey God or disobey God, we, we are much less prone to that forgetfulness that leads us into trouble and leads us into sin and leads us into then invariably pain. We can't forget who God is. We can't forget what he's done and we cannot forget what he's declared. And so this is a lifelong process. This is a lifelong endeavor. This is something we'll never get done with. Continually uh, pressing in this process by the grace of God 
that his word is inscribed upon the tablet of our hearts, that it's written upon us in such a way that um, it's, it's good to carry a Bible around. I hope you do. I hope you don't go very far without uh, a Bible close by, but there's something beautiful to uh, being able to look down and reach down into our hearts where those, those, those words of God have been inscribed and, and for it to be right there at the ready. So forgetfulness is a problem. It, it, it is synonymous here with wickedness, and so we shouldn't treat it as if it's not a big deal. Uh, we must be mindful. Um, we should encourage others to as well. By the grace of God. Amen. Verse 18 in particular. Uh, describes how it often feels when we are struggling through trials. But we have precious promises from God to answer those feelings. And so what, what does verse 18 say? For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. And so I, I told you earlier when, uh, when he says here, see my affliction from those who hate me, right? Sometimes in the midst of difficulty, it's, it feels like God doesn't even see because we're just so overwhelmed and overcome by, by the, the myriad of difficulties, whether it's one big thing that's just weighing on us, or it's, it's so, so if, I'm, if I'm being honest, normally one big thing, I can, I, can, I can cling to the beautiful promises of God, but when, my tendency for getting to the point where I feel like God's not seeing me is when it's so many things, right? When I get hit by six, eight, ten, and all hits at once, right? The old adage, when it rains, it pours, and there's just a myriad, right? And I'm having to feel like i got to spin in circles and, and try to catch all this stuff. That's when I can, I can start to feel overwhelmed, and I can start to not believe, and I can start to forget sometimes that uh, though it feels maybe that God doesn't see my affliction, or, or, or it feels like here in verse 18, he says that the needy will not always be forgotten. And so sometimes it feels like in our need we've been forgotten by God. And there are many that believe that. They don't just feel it, man. They truly, like, it, it is, it's become the way they perceive the situation that God has forgotten me. What do we do with that? What do we do with that if that's, if that's a feeling that we're struggling with and it just, that's the way it looks to me right now, that it feels like God's forgotten me or not seeing me? Or, or, or if it's, it's, it's moved from a feeling to a, to a belief, something that I, I actually don't think God's for me. I actually don't think he sees me or cares about what I'm struggling with. How do we, how do we deal with that? Well, it's, it was answered by what we just talked about, by pushing against, by the grace of God and with the help of of the power of Christ, that forgetfulness that would cause us to forget things like promises in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Here's what it says. As, as, as Moses is being instructed about what's going to go on as, as the people of God cross into the promised land, here's, here's God's word to them. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, that being the people that are already in the promised land that are going to try to make war against God's people. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Well, that's just one scripture in the Old Testament. Well, even if that was true, that's good enough. But if you go to Hebrews 13, 5, this, is, this exact verse is quoted to re-up and to show us again the beauty of this truth. I know sometimes it feels like God doesn't see you, friend. I know sometimes it feels like his eyes aren't upon you. I know sometimes it feels like right in the midst of your need, in, the, in a desperate moment, it seems like you've been forgotten. But here is the truth of God's word. He will not fail you or forsake you. God has made clear. He's got no intention of leaving you. 
What did Jesus say as he laid the great commission upon his disciples? He said, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples in the whole earth, and lo, I am with you always. Friends, he hasn't left you. He hasn't forgotten you. I know sometimes it looks that way, and I know sometimes it feels that way. But sometimes what we have to do is we have to stare those feelings in the face, and we have to speak the truth of God to them and tell them to be quiet. Because the truth of God trumps what it looks like and what it feels like. Now, here's one thing we learn from the Psalms, though. And this is something I think we struggle with to figure out how to walk this line. And I, I think maturity as God's people is hindered by not understanding this balance right here. It is not sinful or wrong that David, in the midst of this psalm of praise, you understand that these are meant to be songs that, that the gathering of God's people would sing. This wasn't just one time a guy writing down his thoughts. This wasn't a journal entry, right? Which it would have been fine if it was. But this is something that was was presented to God's people to be sung, right? And so there's, we know that if God's allowed that, it's, that, that it's not an issue here what's expressed. And so for him to say that it, it feels like sometimes in our need we're forgotten, or sometimes, God, it feels like in my affliction and in my difficulty that, um, that what does he say, be, uh, See, that I don't feel like you see me, right? It's okay to say that. It's okay to say to God, God, right now I feel like you don't see me, right? Because sometimes we, we, we think that, that faith in regards to these things, struggles and difficulties and even like inner turmoil of, of, of struggling with believing that God's going to be faithful to his promises, sometimes we feel like if, if, if we say how it feels and we're honest about it, that that's that that's somehow having a lack of faith. And, and the, the pattern of the Psalms just crushes that idea because over and over again, we, we see that it, we are allowed as God's people to say, Lord, this is how it feels. This is what it looks like. But you see every time it circles back around. You see every time mixed in the midst of it, right? I'm gonna go back to the top to prove this to you. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. Lord, look at me. It doesn't look like you see me. I need you to see me right now. I got people that hate me and want to crush me, and it doesn't seem like you see. But you're the one who lifts me up from the gates of death. Please do that so that I can tell your praises. And so mixed into saying to God, honestly, this is how it feels. Yes, that's how it feels, but I know that you're going to be faithful. But you've proven that what you say, you're going to stick to. You've proven that if you promise, it comes to pass. God, I'm struggling, and I need your help, but my trust is in you. You see that? It's okay to say what it feels like. It's okay to say, I can't see it right now. But even in the midst, we have to understand there's a difference between what we can see and what it feels like and what God has said and thus what is true. Praise God. There's so much comfort for that in me, for me. It's in me, and it's for me. Even though it seems like here, he says, for the needy will not always be forgotten. Here's the truth about it. The needy are never forgotten. It seems like that from his perspective, but they never are. The hope of the afflicted is not going to perish forever. Praise God. May we cling to those promises today, friends, because I know there is 
trial and difficulty and tribulation, it has this effect like a dark cloud that just comes and it, it sets down upon us and it, it weighs us down and, and it blocks our ability to see things for what they really are. And, and sometimes uh, it steals away uh, those precious promises that, that we're clinging to. And, and, and the only way to push back against that, man, a, a, a dark cloud of, of difficulty from the outside, I'll tell you what, that can't do anything if you've got the precious promises of God and the truth of the word of God written upon your heart. It can't come in there and pull it out. No difficulty, no trial ever, if the word of God is in you, can be taken from you. And praise God that we know that his spirit, because of the grace of Christ, that's, that's why Jesus said things to his disciples, and I know it sounded crazy to them. It's better for you that I'm going to leave. They're like, what? No, we need you here. We need you right here to, to handle things, right? Jesus, Jesus is, but he was getting them ready for this idea that he was going to die, he was going to rise, and he was going to ascend to the Father, and he was going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, right? Jesus coming to earth and being with us was amazing, but ultimately the plan of God, the, the fulfilled plan of God and, and the establishing of his church upon the earth to preach the good news of the gospel, what, what was needed for that to happen was not just God with us, but God in us. And dear friend, if you belong to him today, then the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. There's hope in every difficult situation. You've not been forgotten, no matter how great your need is. Your hope will not perish. You have hope because of Christ. Hallelujah. Verses 19 and 20. It says, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Here we see a prayer about these nations that they would come to the humble realization that we must all reach if we are to receive the hope of the gospel or anything else from God. What is this realization? May they understand, let the nations know that they are but men. We have to come to the humble realization, friends, that we are not God. We are but men. Why is this the prayer? Because whether you are consciously aware of it or not, we all struggle with this problem, this sinful tendency rooted in pride to want to take God's place as it pertains to our lives. This desire for autonomy, it reared its ugly, prideful head first in the garden. Because if you remember how the serpent tempted our first parents, it was with this idea. Well, that, that fruit looks good to eat. Yeah, God, you know, first of all, he's trying to give them, get them confused about whether, what God actually said about it. Did God actually say you shouldn't eat that? Did he say you shouldn't touch it? What, what, did, what did he really say? Well, I'm not sure if I remember. So, first of all, that was, that was part of the problem. They didn't remember what God said. They forgot but secondly, secondly, uh, we, we see this idea that, that and what Satan throws back at them is this. Oh, that's, you'll not surely die if you eat that. Here's what's going to actually happen. You're going to know good and evil like who? Like God. What piqued their interest and curiosity, I think what drove them to that sinful rebellion against God there was a lot of good-looking fruit in the garden. I don't think it was so much about the idea that that fruit looked so much better to eat, necessarily, in a physical way, 
than all the rest of what God had provided. It was this idea, Satan planted this seed in their head, you're going to be like God. And that's what he's trying to avoid. He's trying to keep something good from you. He's trying to stay above you. He's trying to control you and hold some good thing from you. Man, you take a bite of that thing, here's what's going to happen. You're going to know good and evil, like God. And if you know good and evil, and you have that knowledge, and you're like God, then what else do you get to do? You get to determine what good and evil is. And so this sinful, prideful tendency, it, 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 it has been passed down to all of us. And for you, it's probably not going to look like eating a fruit from a specific tree in a garden. But for you, it might look like, yeah, I know God says that, but to me, it looks better to do this. Or, yeah, I know God says that, but I really want to do this. Or it, it comes in all different shapes and sizes, colors and flavors, this sinful tendency to want to be like God, to be in control. And we weren't built to be in control. And that's, that's not, that sounds like really bad news for some of you, because some of you really like control. Can we just be honest right now? Can anybody in the room that maybe likes control a little bit more than they should, would they be willing to raise their hand? I'll go first so that you're not alone. Yeah, I think a lot of times, if we're honest and self-aware to any degree, we understand about ourselves this idea that we forget we are just but men. With sinful tendencies, clay feet, frailties, and a propensity for failure that just is always around the corner, we forget that about ourselves. We tend to start feeling really qualified to be in control. And we need to remember, dear friends, who we are. And who we aren't is equally as important. We aren't God. And that, that issue right there, is, is the beginning of that problem that we refer to as the bad news. I've told you before that every single sin, right, the problem, that the bad news of the gospel is that none of us is righteous, right? Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 3.23 says there is not one that has not fallen short of the glory of God. The scriptures are very clear. There, will, there has never been nor will be other than Jesus Christ, a human born that makes it sinless and perfect. And so we got God who is holy and perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, got complete foreknowledge. He's the Alpha and the Omega exists outside of time. He is qualified, dear friend, to be in control. We got him, and we got us. And us is in trouble because we are separated from God by sin. That sin, that, that desire, that prideful desire we have that drives us to do things our way, it caused separation between us and God. That's what the Bible says. God is holy and perfect. He cannot be in close relationship or proximity to that which is, which is unholy and perfect, which is us. That's the bad news. That's where we find ourselves before Christ comes in and does what he does. Can't leave it there, right? Then rushes in the good news. We all have that problem, but Jesus came. Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us could have, and then he died the death that absolutely every one of us should have. He paid the price. He was the sacrifice. He died upon the cross, paying with his blood. That was the currency he used to buy us away from our taskmaster, sin and death, to make us free now. 
to be able to serve him as we were created to do. The Bible says, yes, he died on the cross, but he also rose from the grave, proving that exactly who he said he was is who he was, because you don't conquer death and sin without being the incarnate son of God. So praise God that we see in this, we have, we have, we have an understanding in this idea that let the nations know that they are but men, our problem. So how does, how does it help us, friends, to understand that much of the trouble we get ourselves into, it, it is sourced from, it, it comes originally from this tendency, and, and we wouldn't, most of us wouldn't say it that way. Well, I want to be God today. But with the choices that we make, with disobedience, with deciding we have a better idea, whatever it looks like, right, we are functionally saying, I want to be God today. And so we need a dose of humility and remember that we are just men. We'll never, ever be in a spot to take that job. There's only one. He's the king of everything. And so praise God that even though we do have that tendency and we fall prey to it and, and we do stumble in sin and we do fail and we do, our, our frailty is on display often. The grace of God is there through the finished work of Christ. And dear friend, it doesn't matter how often you're aware of this tendency in yourself. It doesn't matter if you've sinned less than other people you know. The Bible's very clear. There is perfect and there is imperfect. God is perfect and we are not. And in order for the distance that that problem creates to be bridged, we have to be made perfectly righteous, and there's only one way that happens. It's by Jesus giving us his righteousness. Well, how can he do that? The Bible says he does it by faith. And I realize that sounds like a scandalous deal, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't, I'm going to be honest, the gospel doesn't make sense to me, because the way I was raised, you get what you deserve, right? Like, if you do the crime, you do the time. The way I was raised, if you want something, you go work for it, and that's how you get it. So this whole idea that Jesus does all the work... Jesus pays this incredibly high price, and that I get to come in and because I trust and believe that he did that, and that that great work is sufficient for me to be counted as righteousness, because I trust that grace and that mercy of God, that I get to be counted righteous like he is, that, doesn't, that math doesn't add up to me, and that's where faith comes in. That's why faith has to be a gift from God. That's why he, it's, it's something from him that is granted to us as a beautiful gift. He gives us the ability to believe this scandalous, beautiful, precious gospel that is the greatest gift we could ever receive. Thank God it's true, friends. And perhaps up until now, you've somehow imagined yourself faithful enough or, or good enough to earn God's favor or righteousness on your own. I, I just need to say to you, you are but a man. And I would pray this same prayer that David prayed over the, the warring nations around him, those who hated him and were coming for him. And we see something beautiful in this, friends. Do, do we not see the working out of the command to love your enemies in this prayer? Because you could see this, you could see this wrong. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. It seems almost like David's speaking a curse on him here. But really, if we understand how vital it is for every single person to understand their place and God's place, this is actually an incredibly love-motivated prayer from David to his enemies. Because them having a chance of relating properly to God is completely predicated upon them coming to this understanding right here, that they are man, and they are unworthy, and that they are in need of the mercy of an incredibly gracious and perfect God. 
And so, dear friend, can I submit to you that that person that makes it really hard to be at your job, that you would pray for them out of a motive of love, that they would come to know Christ, realize who they are and who God is. Can I submit to you that that person even that cuts you off in traffic, that person in your family that makes family reunions miserable. From the chuckles, I guess I'm not the only person that's, I've read about that, I don't know about it personally, of course, because sometimes my family listens to these, so, um, you know, but I've read about it in books and things, articles. Uh, but there, there, there are people that set themselves overtly and intentionally as an enemy. There are people that just uh, make life miserable for everyone that comes around them. Uh, oftentimes that is because their God complex has them so steeped in pride they think everyone should just bend to whatever uh, would cause them the greatest amount of comfort and or ease at that moment. Those people are hard to deal with. So how do we deal with them? Do we breathe curses under our breath at them? No, I think we come at them the way David has come at them. You know, put them in fear, O Lord. That doesn't sound like a loving prayer. It's, It's absolutely a loving prayer. For someone to be put into the place of humble realization that God is God and they are not, That's what we all need, dear friend. We need it. Pray it for me, please, that I never forget who I am and who God is. And I want to have a humble, right fear of God. That, you know, that idea of fear, right? There's, there's, There's a reverent honor that can be described as a fear like, like, like a trembling because I, there, is, there is so much honor due this person. It's, it's, like, uh, it's, 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 like, it's like being in, 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 in the presence of royalty, right? You're not, um, you're not just messing around and, and you know, if you're, if you're eating at a table with a, with a bunch of royalty, right? You're not smacking your lips and, and elbows on the table, right? There's, there's just like this sense of, of honor that's there, right? And that's, that's this, this fear. There, there needs to be. God deserves that kind of honor, and we can have that form at the very same time that we have the affection and the intimacy of a father. Those are not mutually exclusive. It takes the power of the grace of God for us to walk that line, but it's, they both need to be there, and they need to be there for everybody. And here's, one, here's what we see revealed here, and here's a truth that we need to understand. You'll never have the intimacy and the beauty of relationship that comes with that father heart of God without first that reverence and that honor and that right fear of him. That comes first. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We've got to have that. It's a good prayer for ourselves. It's a good prayer to pray over our friends. It's a good prayer to pray over our enemies. Praise God. May we be a people who delight in God's glory and are as excited about that as we are our own deliverance from difficulty. May we never be counted among those who forget the goodness and mercy and sovereignty of our God. And may we remember we are but mere men, ever in need of the grace that only comes through surrender to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you humbly. We come before you with reverence and honor with the right kind of fear. Lord, we love you. We acknowledge who you are and we acknowledge who we are. Lord, we want to echo David's prayer. We pray it for us first. Remind us, Lord, please, that we are mere men. Daily, please don't let us wake up and get into any delusion that we are 
anywhere near your level. You are God and we are not. Your thoughts are immeasurably higher than ours. Your ways so far superior to ours that the distance between us and you can't be measured. And so we acknowledge that and we rejoice in that, that we don't worship a God that can even be measured. Your greatness is so far beyond our comprehension, Lord, that we can worship forever and never be exhausted of reasons. Lord, we thank you for the rest of what we see in this beautiful psalm. Lord, thank you for showing us. Thank you with this repetitive rhythm throughout the psalms. We have an understanding that you are not afraid of us telling you the truth, that we can express to you how we feel. But I thank you, Lord, we also see here the importance of knowing your promises, knowing what you have said to be true, so that even though our perception can be affected by the difficulty and and, and the strain of working through trials, that we, in the midst of those things, we can rejoice and we can be full of joy because we know your promises are true, because we know that you're faithful, because we know even though it seems like maybe you don't see us, you have said you'll never take your eyes off us. And, And sometimes when it seems like we've been forgotten, Lord, you said you'd never forsake us. Lord, help us to cling to those things like an anchor in a storm. And may we never let go. I ask you, God, to continue to anoint us, Lord. It is so hard for us in this day and age. I know other generations have been distracted, God, but maybe more than ever, we struggle with distraction. Lord, we want to confess that as a sin tendency to you, and we want to ask for your help with it. And God, we are asking for the help of your Holy Spirit, that the truth, the beautiful never-changing truth of your word would be written upon our hearts in such a way that even when we are overcome with feelings of anxiety in the midst of difficulty, that we still can cling to your promises. Thank you for helping us with that. Lord, we submit all of these things to you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your gospel. We worship you, and we give you all praise and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.